Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the first uh, session in the afternoon. And uh, this session is on, uh, this, the panel two is on the happiness movement, mobilizing individuals, communities, and hacking happiness from artificial to artificial intelligence. I didn't write that, I'm just reading it. <laughs> but it sounds so good. So uh, for this, uh, we have really a diverse panel. Uh, a diverse panel. We have uh, Mr. Arnold Collery, who is an author and a happiness motivational speaker. We have Professor Neil, director of MIT's Center for Bits and Atoms, who's done great work introducing Fab Labs in Bhutan. We have Mr. John C. Havens, executive director from the IEEE, who will talk about some of the ethics of autonomous and intelligent systems. Uh, then we have Mr. Namgyalendra from Bhutan, from the board of the Institute of Happiness. And then next to him, we have Professor Ronda from the Purdue University, who will talk about things to be done at the community level. Uh, uh, like the morning session, we have 10 minutes each. We have a timekeeper. We will alert you when your 10 minutes are coming to an end. And uh, I would, uh, in terms of the order, I'm going to request Mr. Arnold to start because he's a happiness motivational speaker and a practitioner. Uh, he'll be followed by Namge, who will share some personal experiences as a practitioner from Bhutan, the land of gross national happiness. Then we'll go to Rhonda, who will talk about things to be done in terms of a happiness movement at the grassroots level, I think which might answer some of the questions raised in the morning. And then we'll be followed by the two uh, who will present opportunities of using technology for, for the happiness movement, Professor Neil and John C. Evans. So I think we're in for a very uh, interesting and exciting afternoon, and I request Mr. Arnold to take oh, the floor. Thank you. So, first of all, I don't think I send it, but I love it. Happiness motivational speaker. So you probably look at my stuff and say, okay, that's what this guy is, which I love. Happiness motivation. I might change my uh, LinkedIn from transformational, inclusive uh, leadership, which is sounds uh, too intellectual to this. Happiness motivational speaker. So thank you for your creativity, guys. Uh, what an honor to be here. I mean, in uh, two things, of course, Harvard University, a dream of mine, just being in this institution. I mean. People on the panel, amazing. People from Bhutan, which I'm, I'll soon be there. And even in the audience, I mean, I saw Professor, uh, is still there, Waldinger. I mean, if you haven't seen his TED talk, you have to see, I think, what is it, 10 million views on how happiness is built on the community on the long term. And the only sustainable happiness is when, when one to each other, you really relate heart to heart and you build your community. So uh, we were on a stage together in a, Aruba, one happy island, a few, few, <laughs> few years ago. Um, I have to say, as a, as a Frenchman, you, you can't hide my accent, despite 15 years in the US, I, I feel a little bit like an imposter. I mean, a Frenchman, being on the panel of happiness. <laughs> I, I, I get it for the Danes and uh, the, the Norwegians and uh, the Canadians, of course, like John Halliwell, all donations we know to be happy. French, I think, on the World Happiness Report this year, I think we were number uh, 26, 28, which is which is nice. Which is uh, we maybe a little bit. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, if you follow the news, you know, we really happy the French people when we get together, we put a yellow vest and say, "We are not happy. We are not happy." <laughs> that brings us so much happiness. <laughs> And then on the individual level, when you ask a fellow Frenchman or French woman, uh, are you happy? All of you who've, meet, who've met French people in both, yeah, ça va, ça va. <laughs> it's Work. really high, not, not much higher than this. So uh, it's, uh, but I've been going back actually to France. I've been based in the US for the last 15 years and I've, I've been going back for the last two, three years because there's a movement. I've, I've, asked, I've been asked to speak about the global happiness movement and my take on it as a practitioner, I mean, I do speech maybe twice a month and I write, but I'm not intellectual per se. And before being a public speaker, I'm more a trainer, a coach. So I'm extremely practitioner. I go on the field. So I do three different things. I have an event called Stand Up for Passion, 
where we take seven meters, we give them seven minutes, actually, we've been, we've been doing that for five years, and we take different theme. We actually took, like John's uh, Haven's uh, uh, favorite topic, artificial intelligence, last week at Google. Meredith was on the front, was there in the audience. And we look for role model in any topics. So my goal is to find those people that portray um, as good as possible a story. Because what I've seen on the field, it's, right, it's nice to read a happiness book and theories and numbers, but as long as you can portray in the field and as long as you have models close to you, you can bring back to the community. So that's why I've been doing that in 30 countries last five years, over 100 workshops, 1,000 leaders I work with, over 200 teams, and over 100 or so chief happiness officers I've trained. I'll tell you in a minute what it is. <laughs> but it's fascinating what's happening for, for someone like me uh, on the field. It, there's a global, and I'm sh we'll see if my, my fellow uh, uh, panel member agree, a fill, um, sort of underground, I think, happiness movement. It's not, I won't say it's still a mainstream, uh, especially in America, especially in New York, where I'm based, it's not mainstream. I can tell you most uh, conference I go, if it's not happiness, when I explain what I say, especially white male look at me like, oh, it's very cute what you do, it's very cute. <laughs> Keep doing that, you know, soft skill things. But I believe, like a, a fellow friend of mine, Claude Silver in New York, it's not soft skills, it's actually life skills we're here to, to bring. Um, so I was, even Stand Up for Passion, we went to places like Nepal, Morocco, everyone wants to hear those stories. Um, when I coach on the field, everyone is interested by this. I work a lot in the luxury field. I, wouldn't, uh, I had 12 different careers before being a coach full-time for the last five years. But I never thought about working for very conservative industry like the luxury. But as you know, you know people are lost. You know, we, lose. we are selling non-essential thing in life now. What do we do? What's our mission? What's our purpose? There's a huge crisis of purpose. All the young people know that in the, in the room, around 40%, whether it's in Japan, in France, or US, 40% of what I call the young millennial, which is, for me, under 32, under 33 years old, will not keep working in the same company if they don't have purpose and joy. So at the end of, at the, end of the day, why the CEO hire me to do a workshop or keynotes or training, it's because employee retention. I make them happy so they stay in the company. And I love it. For me, some people, especially in France, they don't get that I'm using happiness to get into cooperation. And I'm like, it's great. It's a win-win. I make people happier. They understand the basic of happiness. And then the CEO is happier. For, for them, some of the, the, the cooperation I work with, they say, OK, you do your thing. You make everyone better, grateful, compassion. Uh, am I going to detail on what I do? But please, don't mention the word happiness. Or please don't mention compassion. Please don't mention mindfulness. But do your thing, please. Don't talk about family and tribe and community. But at the end of the day, we want people to trust each other, to like each other, to know why they do what they do. I'm like, OK, but this is about purpose and mindfulness and gratitude and compassion. So I do the exact same thing, except I don't say the name. And you know, even mindfulness, when I start with that, I say, uh, let's do a self-reflection thing. And some of them say, you know, it was actually meditation. What? I did meditation. <laughs> Some of them, actually, they, they have this sort of a, um, resistance. But it's coming every day. Every single country, whether it's France, it's Japan, I mean, uh, and what I see, it's part of the world um, which are getting interest in this. For me, I see a lot of in Central, uh, Central America and the, the, just the top of South America. I keep going to Venezuela, Colombia, Aruba, soon Brazil. This just tip part. I see a lot of things as... John know very well in Dubai, in the Middle East. I keep going to the Middle East. I never thought before becoming a happiness uh, expert, I guess. I never thought going back and back and back in the Middle East, but fascinating what's happening. I mean, the, the elite especially want to change the youth. And many of them, I say, why did you bring me? And it's actually for those, you know, those radical things, got it, ra radical things happening. They want to find some sort of a counter thing. Um, uh, maybe I'll go in detail just uh, for a brief minute what I do on the, on the gratitude. So for me, the, the basic element as a practitioner is storytelling, understanding your story. Make everyone, and you work in every company. I work a lot, in, again, the UN, luxury, the tech, I mean, uh, 
uh, if some follow the, the tech news, one of my main clients is a Kareem. Uh, just to, you know, to go back to Harvard Business School for a while, I guess. Uh, Kareem is the number one startup in the Middle East, sold for $3 billion last week. You, you know, you're aware of it. Uh, they start seven years ago. I work with the leadership from day one. Maybe not day one, but maybe six months in. At the core of their mission, and this is what they, that's why they feel this, they, their company was exactly what the market needs, happiness for every employee. If, if a company doesn't understand compassion, gratitude, purpose, and everything, they're out, they don't get in. I mean, I had the youngest employee, and Meredith saw it on my stage talking, he's the head of AI, 28 years old, brilliant, French-American, graduate from X in France, which is number one engineering school, yet is only about compassion, about spirituality. I mean, we had a two-hour talk next morning, it was just... So some of those young people are blowing me away. I mean, actually, I'm learning so much from them. So there is a revolution happening, especially on the 31, 32 years old in top startup, top luxury company. I see CEO of companies say, can you make that person, that manager, who's maybe some a bit older, like 40 years old, can you make more empathy? And if not, we're gonna get rid of that manager which I love it, I mean, it's a real revolution. It was not happening in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s. So those managers who cannot understand how to relate to people with their heart are getting rid of company, are getting fired. And I think it's an amazing thing. Like if you don't, they don't really, and I've seen those managers, I've seen, I just don't get it. I mean, it's, it's about metrics, about prestige. I mean, we go there to, to make money. No, it's a new world. So we, we're talking in the divinity school, we think it's, there's many of us. Uh, and I'll finish on it, there's probably one minute left. Chief happiness officer, it's actually one of my title. There's a, there were a few of us, there were less than 20 of us five and a half years ago. I started this in a tech incubator again in South Africa. Now there's 5,000 of us across the world. I've trained a hundred of them across. So what is it? It's to bring more joy and more purpose. It's simple, simple. So you bring lightness with improvisation game, fun stuff, where Maybe people don't have to, to, to show up always in maybe suit or, or they don't have to, to call each other a certain way where a manager are called coaches. So lighten up things and then more purpose. So deep conversation like it was never happening. Um, some, and there was actually two of my uh, CHO uh, train uh, was a couple months ago in New York. They just happened to be there. Thank you for one of them is a former pastor, actually. So we attract a lot of people from uh, many things, but again, at the, at the heart of what I see is just everyone that wants to bring more joy and purpose. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, a quick uh, follow-up question. Uh, from what you said, it almost sounded like happiness is, uh, uh, well, uh, in fact, not it sounded like, I think you did say that happiness is actually a skill. Skill. Which means it oh, can yeah. be taught, oh, yeah, yeah. it yeah, can yeah. be developed. Yeah. Could yeah. you just uh, oh, yeah. I always share take a this couple of examples, maybe on empathy? Sure. I, uh, I always actually take this example, especially in America, it works not so much in France. When you go to the gym, you grow your muscles. You know, America is all about sports. France, we, we're getting there, not yet. Not yet. Uh, it's, for me, it's like a gym. Happiness is like a gym, you work it. The gratitude things to really tell people, and actually a very simple exercise, you go back to whoever you have not been grateful for the last five years, make a phone call now. It doesn't have to be hours, it doesn't have to be well written. It just go, hey, you've done something incredible for me five years ago, it still meant a lot to me. That's it. Simple as that, right? So this is very practical, that, that, builds, uh, uh, that builds empathy, for instance. Yeah, great. great ideas. And actually, if you try some of this, I gather, it really has immediate Im impact. I heard of this one where to teach empathy, they said, okay, maybe you don't have hours, can you spare like maybe five seconds a day? They said, that I can afford. So they said, for five seconds a day, think of a colleague you don't like at work, and now think good thoughts for them. And these people, they did that just 10 days and they came back and they said the relation improved and, and they started feeling immediately better. And the reason now science shows us is because emotions happen in your body. You think good thoughts for others, but actually the oxytocin, etc., is flowing inside you. So uh, thanks for sharing that Thank also. You. So next we move to Mr. Namgil, who from Bhutan, board member of the Institute of Happiness, and he'll give you another practitioner, but a Buddhist practitioner, perspective on happiness. Please. Okay, thank you, Dasho. 
Uh, thank you, and I think I would like to also join the Olympic speaker, and I think thank you for, I think, uh, getting this opportunity, and I look forward to uh, listening to you and also some feedback from the audience. But uh, my take is this, that uh, I am not expertise on this, but I would like to share some of these <laughs> personal experiences that I have been through my life, that uh, happiness, how, how I came across, and where I am, and I started as a planner back in 1985, and uh, joined the planning commission in Bhutan, which is now the JNH commission. I worked there about 20, almost 20 years. Then I've moved on to do some other job, and then I landed up as a CEO of a company, and now I'm retired, and now I'm working for this IOH Institute of Happiness. I thought that uh, this is a place where I will be able to do something, and uh, rest of my life may make some uh, difference to the Buddhist community, Buddhist society. The like to share this because I think in 1985 when I joined, uh, that time the planning commission chairman was the person who propounded this uh, idea of JNH. So I had the op uh, opportunity to work uh, under him and the, what he perceived as the objective for Buddhist development vision. And I think together with Ashok Karma, we also came up with the first document of Vision 2020 for Bhutan, where we have outlined some of these basic uh, parameters where how uh, happiness is defined in Buddhist context. From development perspective, that is most crucial thing we looked at is was important was this cultural identity, where Bhutan, being a very small country within two giants in Asia, identity has become very important, and our king emphasized that. That's why we still value this, and wherever we go, we try to uh, show this through this identity, Buddhist. That's the only way he, he always say that we can be different, because there are billions in India, billions in China, and Bhutan is a small speck. We will be lost, this one. The next one is spiritual. We, we have these values, you know, like Buddhism, where I think empathy, compassion, then being, uh, I think, uh, good to your neighbors, and all those things come from Buddhist uh, context. And then we have the environment, which is, again, we, this morning we have dealt so strongly, and I think environment preservation, where I think back in the 60s itself, our country, a king under benevolence of the kings, they saw this as important area, where I think that time the world was not even bothered about society, I mean, the environment and sustainable development, all those things, but we, we valued their time only. So I joined the commission, planning commission when we were in the fifth, implementation fifth five-way plan, and eight one to eight seven, then we went on to do another two, three plans. I left at the uh, initial stage of ninth five-way plan where Dasho Karma came as secretary, of course, I was as a planner, then I moved on to do some other work. But uh, the, the important thing is that that has been, the, I think there has been the growth. And then over the years, the GNH has been, I think, they, I think we must thank Tasho for making this global. I think under his, when he was the uh, secretary of the uh, GNH, these things move forward. And why I want to bring personal visit was during the period as planner, planner and then as an implementer in the district, I work as Dongda, which is almost like a, governor or a magistrate in the district. And I had the opportunity to work over three years there, working with the people. And I found how much we make a difference as a uh, administrator to the people. So I worked hard and I managed to uh, do well, I must say. Then move on to become a, a director of immigration, then to so-called, uh, I became a CEO of an insurance company. And all along, what I felt was that most important thing for us, a Buddhist, as a Buddhist, there are certain things we, we value, we practice. And as a true Buddhist, we start early morning with certain prayers. And as uh, Dash Karma was pointing out, the empathy, where we have to, because we, we believe that everyone was us are related, even the insects and the flies that are flying around. We all, we feel that we are related because of, by virtue of the reincarnation and the karmic, you know? So even your most arch enemy, must have been uh, your father or mother in the past life. That's why we believe. That's why we always try to be very forgiving to our enemies and our, our uh, foes. That's what we, we believe. And in my prayers, this is what we say. We say good about uh, the sentient beings for yourself and the community at large, the well-being of, we pray that. Then, of course, 
as a part of this, we, as a personal well-being, I also practice a little bit of uh, yoga, which is, of course, uh, very much in the Buddhist uh, teachings there. But now, most popular is the Indian uh, one, Ramdev, Swami Ramdev. I practice his five pranayams, which, which keeps you very, very, I think, uh, balanced in your thinking, in your health, because some of these pranayams can even cure uh, cancer, they say. But I don't know about cancer, but definitely it cures headache. Immediately, if you have headache, you do some of this, you, you get all right. Then uh, sinusitis, which my wife and I used to have. And this was all wiped away after this, doing these pranayams. So that sort of thing. And then, of course, going into the day, then whatever you do, you try to do something good for yourself and for the community. Of course, most of the time, these things are not recognized, or these things are not uh, necessarily, I think, uh, what you perceive, what you expect will not happen. But nevertheless, you must be happy that you have tried your best to do these things. So from that perspective, uh, the personal uh, GNH, I feel, well-being is very much part of the Buddhist culture, and where I think we all grew up, uh, our grandparents, our parents, and they say their prayers, and we follow, and now my children are following me, so that's the thing. And what, what, what most important thing, what I've seen is that, uh, looking at my children, what I've seen them is that, uh, I never told them that you have to be religious, I never told you to practice, but what has happened is that they are following me, and then most crucial thing, uh, most important thing I've, I observed was that this, this is that they become good human beings, and wherever they went, the people who I interact, they say, oh, you have a son, and such. They, they say, they good, give me good feedback, and I feel good. Your daughter is such a nice person, you feel good. And they, are, and they are very dedicated, and they work hard. That sort of thing, and that lately, lately makes me happy. I am not rich, I am not uh, powerful, yet I feel that this is where I feel good about it, and I, I feel that the personal well-being is, I feel you start from home, and you take care of your children, your parents, this is what Buddhists do. Grandparents, uh, in Bhutan, the babysitters are always the grandparents, as of now. And then, there are like the like Norwegian cases in Bhutan, so most of these community vitalities are still there. We have a lot of communities where we help each other. And in the rural, most rural, rural part of Bhutan, when you build a house, the whole village comes to build the house for you. All you have to do is, end of the, when the house is uh, ready, then what you do is, we celebrate where they, we bring everybody, and that time we, we reward them with uh, maybe uh, a piece of pork or beef like that, and, uh, and then the number of days this guy contributed, we give one piece like that. That sort of thing we have. And of course, now with the modernization, things are, of course, also eroding in these practices. Because in the villages, these are still intact, but move into the urban, those things are getting lost, no? You know, because uh, we are in the urban setting, you don't know, even you don't talk to your neighbors. That, that's happening in Bhutan also. But I think the government is conscious about it. And I think GNH is something where we are trying to, again, revitalize that. And that's where I feel uh, IOH can do the reimagining the uh, GNH and bring back even the urban. That's because increasingly, the urban mig uh, rural urban migration is increasing in Bhutan. And now we have to prepare for that. Because otherwise, this is going to be a problem because we are already having the issue of uh, drugs, children, and then drinking problem, and un with the unemployment that's rising, these are all going to be our challenge. And we feel that as a private, uh, from the private sector, IOH can make a difference, where the government will give the policy, but we thought we will work towards improving this. Uh, that, that's what I feel, and if any questions, I'll thank you, and I think I'll, I'll want to take more time. Thank you. Last, uh, thank you. Quick follow-up question. Uh, I think the model of uh, grandparents uh, looking at babysitting might not translate so well here, so there might be some cultural issues, and it might not do wonders for the grandparents' happiness. Uh, but the question I'm coming to is, uh, Mr. Namgil actually in the uh, later phase, the last phase, he went on to become the CEO of, a, of our one and only uh, insurance company. And actually, he made a ton of money for the shareholders. And I just want to find out how much of the GNH 
thinking and philosophy did you take with you to uh, the Royal Insurance Corporation of Bhutan? And if you can share something specific you did there, which was influenced by these values and view you carried with you. Uh, thank you, Rasho. I think the one thing I can remember is, I, as an insurance company, we felt I felt that one of the main uh, responsibility of this company is to ensure and to give the safety safety uh, net uh, for the Buddhist community. So what uh, I think Dasho will also remember, uh, one one most important thing I did was uh, there there used to be so-called rural house insurance. All the Buddhist houses are insured. But we were getting about, uh, if your house get burned or destroyed, they were getting over 30,000. 30,000 ultram, which is uh, same as rupees. 30 will be how much dollar? 30,000 will be about uh, 500. $500 or something, but which is not able to build a house now. So what uh, we initiated was from when I was there as a CEO was that we increased that. We made it into three slabs. Earlier there were two slabs, but Maximum was 30,000, then small was about 20,000 like that. If this covers everything, you know, all the all the risks are covered: your fire, your uh, earthquake, uh, uh, what any 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 calamities you think, we all covered. But the uh, the amount they were getting was small, so we enhanced it, and we made the government again enhance their contribution. It's, it's a pity-pity basis. So if government puts in $50, uh, the person pays about uh, 50 and they match it. But uh, the, what is good about it is that we looked at different housing houses. So higher the people who have a bigger house, they, they insure more, but they have to put more. But the lower people, we make sure that they don't put as much as the people who are richer, bigger houses. But anyway, Bhutan, we cannot classify a rich by its building. Because every Bhutanese will, first thing we do is we try to, whatever saving you have, we'll go out and build a house. In the rural areas, you see four or five story houses. I'm sure those people who are in Bhutan, they will, they will agree that we have these beautiful houses. So as a rule, most of Bhutanese have good houses, but some places we do not have. But we have these three categories. The biggest house will get around 300,000. We call it three lakhs. Then medium was about two, then one lakh like that. Minimum one lakh. 100,000. So that's what we made. And we put to the democratically elected government, first democratically elected government, and we got it approved. And so this is something where every Bhutanese, uh, all over all will Bhutan, yes, if you have a house which is registered, you'll get this money. And then this, this was the first initiative. Then we want to do the second, and also we got an award from some of these regional uh, uh, insurance companies where this was a single most, I think, nowhere in the world these, these things were there. Such insurance was there for no, nowhere in the world. I think even the Norwegians, I don't know whether they have or not, but we were told that this is a classic and one unique uh, policy, so we got that uh, come through. Then second, elected government, what we proposed was, I was there for 10 years in the insurance company. Second government, what we proposed was life insurance. Because Again, in Bhutan, under the initiative of the fourth king, again, the one visionary king who said GNH is important than G, uh, GNP, he again initiated that every Bhutanese who is above eight years and above will be covered insurance. Where we were paying about 15 rupees, 15 ultram, 15 rupees, that is. Uh, even not one quarter of a dollar, but we were paying that. But if he dies, if anybody dies about eight years and above, we were getting around 15,000 as from the government, there's government. So we again, we said this is now not possible because in Bhutan, what's happened is when somebody dies, if especially children who are about eight years, we have the 49 days ritual, which is very expensive. And as a Buddhist, and sometimes uh, some people complain also, but this is a practice in Bhutan. So what we did was we again enhanced this, this uh, insurance. Uh, life insurance. So now what we are getting, people who are eight years and above, all Buddhists are covered, and they get around uh, uh, one, one, 100,000 now. This is where we brought it. So these are two things I feel I can be notable for the benefit and for the safety of uh, social security of the Buddhist people. These two I feel is something where I made contribution. Thank you. Well, thank you for sharing that, and I can testify that uh, those were both very well received because they took uh, care of a key concern, you know, when you're facing the most difficult times.
Uh, okay. So, so next we move to uh, Professor Ronda. And Professor Ronda is with the Happiness Alliance. And she's going to speak about, about a very important aspect of uh, happiness, which is you can't be happy alone. It's very difficult. It's, you can be really happy when also the people around you are happy. So if you want to get more happiness go, get go, you know, going in your communities, you have to figure out ways to get other people uh, involved and engaged. And, and so she's going to speak about, um, about how to get a happiness movement going. So okay, Rhonda. great. Okay. Uh, can you hear me okay? Especially if I lean closer. Okay, well first, we just had lunch. We need to liven ourselves up a little bit. So I have three of the highly coveted GNH <laughs> stickers to give away. So it's time for a pop quiz. I'm a professor after all. Wow. The only right answers are the ones that I've already predetermined. So if you get it right, you get a sticker. And there's only three. So what we're going to do is I'm going to start with question. Raise your hand, the first one. Well, let's see. I might not see your hand go up. First one to call it out, and all of you help me figure out who answered it first okay. with the correct answer. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the first one for the GNH sticker, you'll notice I have one. It's, it's wonderful for your bike, fender, <laughs> car bumper, book bag, whatever. Here's the question, so I want you to think about this. The opposite of spiritualism is blank. Materialism, Miss No. <laughs> that's, a, that's almost worth the sticker right there. <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give it to you, even though that's not the answer that I have. But the uh, the answer is, and this uh, actually, I was, I recently had the amazing opportunity to host Michael Pollan, who's a award-winning uh, New York Times bestseller author. Uh, on campus, on my campus, and we, we had this deep, deep discussion in front of, you know, hundreds of people, and, and I agree with him on this. He said, the opposite of spiritualism is not materialism as we would think, and that's what you have guessed, but rather it's the ego, or the ego-driven affect, uh, egoism. So, in other words, if you can somehow uh, distance yourself from the ego that drives so much of what we do as humans, maybe not our colleagues from Bhutan, but the rest of us pretty much. And um, that's where you really begin to have insight. And so this made me start thinking about uh, gross national happiness, because when you look at gross national happiness, it's, it's sort of this, in many ways, opposite of, of what we use in GDP and the gross uh, domestic product that the GDP is more materialistic. I mean, it focuses on that, actually, how much we produce and everything that has a monetary value. So it's materialism. And it's also um, very much ego-driven. When we look at rankings and production, and if production falls the least little bit, we get slammed in our economy or prices start going down in certain companies, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about productivity and production. The opposite of that, to, to my mind, and maybe to some of you as well, would be that the gross national happiness is more spiritual in nature and would also be more inclusive. And inclusivity and participation are the foundations of community development, which is how you build community, how, whatever size, wherever that is. And so to me, it makes sense that that is the opposite. Okay, on to question number two. Okay, this, this is an easy one. I just know that there's going to be so many people, so we're going to have to be on our P's and Q's here to get the right person. Okay, fill in the blank again. Happiness is and should be the blank of life and government. Okay, the closest I heard was aim, which is purpose. The purpose, the purpose. Do we remember, uh, well, tell me if you remember who said this. Happiness hey, is, this, this is yours. <laughs> this, okay. yours this oh, you yours. did? Someone else said? Okay, we'll have to have, I'll give you one of my yeah, other kind of stickers for somebody else. <laughs> okay. it's your, your happiness your, counts. You okay. <laughs> okay, so tell me who said this. This is sort of paraphrased a bit. Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. 
Aristotle. Yes. Okay. We we've just had lunch, so I know you know we're not thinking. <laughs> oh no, I was just giving the the backup to that one. Okay. Question number three. Now I know we're going to have a lot of people get this exactly right the moment I say it. So again, you'll have to help me figure out who says this. Happiness is a blank shift from GDP. Yes, that was it. The first time, the first answer. This is yours, okay? After, okay. Paradigm shift. Paradigm shift. Absolutely. And and why is that? Because it's a it's a wider reason, resource, rationale for well-being, which is a much broader framework than looking at the economic production of an economy, of a community, of a nation, whatever it may be. Um, and if we think about it in that way, then this becomes our goal. This becomes reflective of our values. And, and it's what we measure. Because what we measure is how we move forward with figuring things out, whether what kind of policies we want, what we're going to reward, how we're going to allocate resources, economic and otherwise. And so that's why it's so important to have these conversations around what do we measure. And also, uh, again, we have to step back from that a bit, like we heard in the first panel today. We have to think about this as what we value. Because whatever we measure, like it or not, will become what begins to influence policy, decision making, and outcomes for us all. And we can see that clearly with the gross domestic product, the GDP, and how that became uh, superseded so many other things uh, that we have in, in our way that we govern ourselves. So um, a few more things I want to talk about. One is that I often get this question, not from a group like this that is so well-versed, and I'm sure experts in your own right about happiness and well-being and everything in between, but from some groups will say, well, why, why are you even saying you want to measure well-being? That, that's, that's some esoteric um, concept that no one can grasp and that no one really wants to know other than you know, maybe your own personal self, you can evaluate it. Well, I'm here to tell you, you already know this probably, the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is the, the larger uh, economies of the world and then some affiliate members, there's about 32, I believe now, in the OECD, issued a guidelines on measuring subjective well-being. They definitively answered the question of whether happiness can be measured or not. So they set the standard, they set the benchmark. And so when you start, three minutes, is that all? Okay, when you, when you start pulling out that, people start saying, okay, okay, there must be something to this, right? Because they're beginning to uh, you know, measure it at that level of like the OECD and, and the UN. And, and I was going to read you a quote from the UN, we're gonna bypass that, because I've only got less than three minutes. I had too much fun playing the game, I think. Um, but I also am a, um, a board member of a nonprofit group called Happiness Alliance. This was an outgrowth of Sustainable Seattle. It's about measuring happiness and well-being at the community, regional, even national levels. And they were one of the very first groups to put together an index. It's called the Happiness Index. I've got brochures here if you want those. Um, and it's free. And so about 9,000 to 10,000 people take this every year. We've got lots of data that talks about um, what are the measures that, that most uh, appeal to others? It's, it's used in, let's see, about eight different languages now and in and, and several different countries around the world. And I didn't have my beautiful slides up to show you, unfortunately, about what the happiness scores are, but you wouldn't be surprised because you can see some dips, particularly around 2016, but there's some dips in things like uh, social support or, um, government, and, and you, it would be the sort of the things that you would normally expect. We have dips when something happens sometimes in our communities or in our nation, and then it'll spike back up. Um, but if you're interested, please take a moment and take it. It's an individual-based index. So it's easy, it's quick, it's for you. It's not to, you don't give your personal data that goes into some big database. This is for you to know and understand. And also to look at what others may be uh, in a region if you can pull those up. Um, we also do project work. We're working with something called Planet Happiness right now. This is the UNESCO World Heritage Sites around the world. There's 
oftentimes a lot of overdevelopment in those areas where they get sort of overrun by tourism, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a way of looking how to balance happiness in those communities. And so we do a lot of those project-based kind of work as well. Um, but what I sort of want to close with now that I have, what, 30 seconds left, <laughs> is the happiness movement, it is a paradigm shift. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of being more inclusive, of having your values reflected as individuals and as communities, as regions, as nations. And I really think that unless we take ownership of what it is we want to measure, we'll end up with a lot of other things coming towards us that may not be reflective of what we value the most. And that's just sort of my, um, I'd like to, to leave you with that, is that, you know, figure out what it is you value most and measure it and send that forward. And um, as we know, what usually happens with, with change in governance and policy is that people start it first. And, and get the momentum going, and then government responds to that. So anyway, um, I'm out of time. But anyway, I want to just say, go for it. Um, take the index. See how happy you are. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Rhonda, for sharing that. Uh, I, I, think, uh, uh, the, uh, I think what you have there for individual assessment is open to all. Yes, it's free. Uh, it's absolutely yes. free to take, uh, and it's uh, happycounts.org. Yes. I've got some brochures and stickers. For, from yeah. the whatever you must have collected till now, what stood out? Can you just what's the, what stood out from whatever data you've oh. been collect, uh, collecting well, or getting feedback? What stands out as something yeah. worth uh, sharing? Yeah, well, um, it, the satisfaction with life and psychological well-being is all the, usually the ones that we see changes that correlate, you know, much like when they do the World Happiness Report, because we're, we're more U.S.-based. We do have other countries taking it, too, but um, you can sort of chart when big things happen in the country, and, and satisfaction sort of starts going down, or up, depending if it's positive or negative. And it, it, we have uh, data over um, quite a bit of time, so we can sort of see those trends. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is that you can uh, look at on these 11 different domains, you can really gauge yourself and, and what influences you and what makes a difference. And, you know, community does make a difference, where you are and who you're around and, and uh, how others think in your community, too. I mean, it does impact you on that level individually. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. In fact, in the Bhutan survey also, we saw that a deterioration in the psychological well-being domain. So it looks like in these modern times where we are under all sorts of pressure and of course not helped by social media and mobile phones, uh, this is probably one area we need to address. And in Bhutan, one of the ways is uh, trying to get everyone into a lifestyle of meditation as one way to help deal with it. Of course, other reflective exercises apparently give as good effects. And when it comes to meditation, the one I recommend because that is very good on the home front is to do dishwashing meditation. <laughs> so you get your therapy, but you also get the dishes done and your partner is very happy. So, so with that, we'll shift gears and we'll turn to the remaining two speakers. First, we have Professor Neil. Uh, and now we're going to look at more the technology side of things and what prospects are there for use of technology, uh, artificial uh, intelligence to help with our desire to, to be more happy. Okay, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, before lunch, we heard MIT's job was to make the seat belts. And um, I'm from MIT, and I work on seat belts. <laughs> Actually, airbags. I worked on controllers, so airbags didn't kill infants. Um, so why am I here? The reason I'm here is on Thursday, uh, His Majesty, the King of Bhutan, spent five hours in a fab lab in Timpu um, that I helped start. And so I want to take my 10 minutes to explain what he was doing there and what it has to do with Bhutan. So I direct the Center for Bits and Atoms at MIT that studies how digital and physical relates. And we're working on how you make the uh, Star Trek replicator, quite literally. But you don't have to wait 50 years for us to get done. Uh, um, we started setting up community fab labs. It would roughly fit in this room that are small scale versions of where the research is going. And those accidentally went viral. There's over 1,000 they double every year and a half. And on a community scale, it has 3D printers, but all the other tools you need to make the things you buy, technology, boats, bicycle, furniture, consumer electronics, food, all of that you can make with these tools. 
Um, and so rather than having jobs to get work, to get money, to buy things, you can just produce them. Consumers can become creators. And if you look at the most sensitive issues of import, quotas, inequality, all of that, this is really an end run around it, revisiting the basic assumptions of how an economy functions. And more than that, these labs would create community, they would create knowledge, they really touch something very, very profoundly deep about just the practice of making. Um, so against that background, when you walk down the street in Timpu, in one of the most beautiful parts of the world, along with traditional crafts, you find crap trucked in from India and China and Japan. Just these sad consumer products mixed in with these traditional crafts. And so that observation led to a dream team of Tsuang Lundup Karmalaki, Japan's country representative Koji Yamada, and His Excellency former Prime Minister Dasho Charing Tabge came together and said, why don't we have one of these labs in Timpu? So a few years back, I helped set one up. And um, it, just, it was just electric, bright inventive people, sort of the nerds of Bhutan, came from all over the country because they heard these tools were available to make things, but not just making the thing, but the practice of making the knowledge, the community, the transformation. And uh, one of the most interesting visitors um, was the president of the Center for Bhutan Studies, Dasho Karma Ura, a colleague of yours. And what came out of him visiting was a really, really interesting analogy. We didn't have a deep insight, we were just providing the tools. Uh, you've spent a whole day learning about GNH. GNH is profound, it's world changing, but it has nothing to do with sort of this stuff, the kind of stuff around us. That gets trucked in crap from India. And what we realized was what the Fab Lab was doing was making GNH physical, it was embodying it. It was taking sort of the inner part of GNH and bringing it external, manifesting GNH. It was a physical form of gross national happiness. And so that observation then has spiraled. And so I'm happy to report recently in the 12th five-year development plan, 2018 to 2023, uh, Bhutan's parliament and cabinet secretary has approved initially setting 10 of these labs across Bhutan, one in every uh, district in Bhutan. Um, and then in turn, the Ministry of Education wants one of these in all 150 <coughs> central schools in Bhutan. Uh, and in turn, that's leading to something really interesting. The Fab Lab today, so think of this in the history of computing as there are mainframes then mini computers before personal computers. And mini computers weren't yet personal, but that's when the internet, video games, email, word processing, all of that was invented. The only thing really that changed is they got faster, better, cheaper, but it all happened then. In the same sense, the Fab Lab today fills a room, maybe half of this room, it's about two tons, it's a $100,000 investment. The research is how you all merge it into one tool. But one of the most interesting things is along the way to the replicator is we're reaching a point now where a well-equipped lab, one level up from a fab lab, can make a fab lab, <laughs> that the machines can make the machines. And so there's a really interesting project along the way to creating a national network of these $10,000 local labs. We're working with Bhutan to plan a million dollar super lab whose job is a lab that makes labs so the technology itself can virally spread through the country. And in support of that, uh, we've had to build a whole set of organizational capacity. There are um, industries, there's, in, there's investment, there's aid, there's all of those schools, but none of them do this. E equipping non-scientists and non-engineers to become scientists and engineers not for business, but for alternative economic models, where you don't make things to get paid, you make it for yourself or your community, is really nobody's job. And so we've had to build um, a nonprofit foundation for the organizational capacity to support it. We had to build a whole educational program, because all around the world, the bright invent of people were refugees from dysfunctional school systems that didn't know how to teach this and had too many rules. And so um, there's a whole really interesting, if anybody can make anything anywhere, it fundamentally changes how you live, work, play, and you have to build a new kind of organizational capacity to do that. And so this collaboration with Bhutan is so profoundly interesting because just as Bhutan led with gross national happiness, it's really doing it again with this. We're doing this in various parts of the world, but Bhutan is doing it on the scale of a whole country. We're working with cities like, Barcelona has great design sense and over 50% youth unemployment. And so they started a fab city commitment of cities signing up as urban infrastructure to have the means to produce on the city scale. 
but Bhutan is really the first country to embrace this on a national scale. You expect to have access to clean water and electricity. Now there's a notion of you have access to the means to produce, the means to make as part of the infrastructure of the country, really pioneering this transition from consumption to creation as the foundation of an economy. So in the end, making seatbelts at MIT connects to the future of Bhutan by embodying GNH, by making GNH physical. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Neil, for sharing very exciting developments. And uh, uh, you know, you just brought a fourth dimension. I'm reading this uh, really amazing book by John Edmondson called why read, why write, uh, why teach. And I think you're bringing the fourth dimension, why build. And actually, that has all to do with, with this, the final narrative, I guess, as human beings, we're always trying to strive to solve, and, uh, and happiness is very much a part of that uh, conversation. But you didn't answer my one question, or one ask, which is, how do, what prospects do you see Fab Labs for this whole uh, happiness thing we are talking. Mm -hmm. Do you see? Uh, do you have any thought? Yeah. So, um, it, the the meeting with the so first of all, for those of you who haven't been to Bhutan, you may have, if I may, can speak candidly, a misperception that the GNH office isn't friendly and happy. It's sort of feared like the IRS. <laughs> um, you know. I asked for that. Yeah. Um, they're, they're tough. They measure. They, they don't waltz around and, you know, they, they come in and they quantify and you have to answer them and they measure. And so it was this really interesting meeting with them of like initially they weren't even sure why we were talking to each other. What does this have to do? You know, they have their beat and we're doing this. And then we realized that there's just this huge track of life in Bhutan that was sort of out of the remit of the office, which is sort of the, the physical environment. And so in a very, very, very direct way, I think it's, it's manifesting GNH, it's embodying it, it's making it physical. But to be clear, the notion of sustainable local production isn't something you have to introduce in Bhutan. It's been there from the beginning, it's based on it. But the but is, think of this as think globally, fabricate locally. That locally, yeah. there's a subset of things you can do that you've been able to do for centuries. But the things I'm describing, if you want to make advanced electronics or you know, turbines for power or all of that, you need global knowledge and you need advanced technology, but you need to integrate it locally. And so um, one more way to think about these fab labs is they go from digital to physical. So you can send data around the world, sharing idea and knowledge, but you can turn it into physical artifacts. So you can be local, but it's sort of back to the future. It's not simply reverting to an agrarian economy. It's getting access to all the technological advances, but in a local setting. So embodying GNH would be the summary. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and what Professor said is actually absolutely true. Uh, you know, making people happy is serious business. And of course, uh, bureaucrats, once you get involved, you take the joy out of everything anyway. So it's uh, absolutely true. So uh, with that, we now turn to the last speaker, uh, uh, Mr. John C. Havens, Executive Director, IEEE, who will talk about ethics of autonomous and intelligent systems. And I think uh, just uh, before the panel discussion, I had a moment to talk, and he was talking about about uh, the issues uh, surrounding artificial intelligence, how biases get built there, which has implications. So I think uh, uh, it'll be good to hear from you what prospects uh, you see for hacking happiness using intelligent systems. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, I want to say thank you, Neil, for following you, because now I'm just purely intimidated, but in a good way. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, did John Halliwell leave? Where's Halliwell? All right. He said, because he knows I play harmonica, and I brought it, I bring it everywhere I go. And he's like, you got to play. And I'm like, well, if I play and they don't like it, then I can blame you, but he's not here. So. <laughs> here you go. Uh, I love music. It brings me happiness. It's after lunch. I hope this brings you happiness or some kind of uh, hormone kick of some kind. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Lindsay Cambridge. Yeah. We'll see you later. There we go. All right, do it. Here we go. Wave. Hurry on this side. Back here. Do the wave. Here we go. Right. In the middle. In the middle. And back. All right. Full ten minutes, and then I'm done. So, can, can I say I'm intimidated? Oh, good. All right. But it's a happiness. <laughs> Yes, all right, well, I have eight minutes now. All right, so first of all, it's an honor to be here. I want to say thank you because the first time I actually found out about happiness beyond a mood was because of gross national happiness. Um, I also want to say thank you, and hopefully I won't, I tend to cry a lot when I think about my dad. But um, I'm from Needham, Massachusetts, and my dad went to <clears throat> Harvard Med. And he uh, was raised in Long Island, and he was, didn't have a lot of money, but they put him through to Harvard for a program for kids without a lot of money. But on the way here, I was just thinking about my dad a lot, and I miss him. He passed away in 2011. He was a psychiatrist, so when he passed away, a great deal of my thought was, what does it mean to have self-worth? What does it mean to love yourself even when you feel like you don't have worth? What does it mean to take a measure of your life when you are told often from different voices that you have no worth. And my dad was a hero. He spent 50,000 hours, we calculated it one time, and I'm not a math person, toe-to-toe <laughs> uh, -to -toe with people, eyeball to eyeball, doing his utmost to love them well with his training. And that's hard. You know, it is when you have like a good talk with someone for a long enough time and then when you keep talking, you're like, I'm gonna watch Game of Thrones for a while. <laughs> Anyway, so I bring that up because, um, as it turns out, and thank you again, it was honored, the title of this talk, Hacking Happiness, was a book that I wrote in 2016, that was the title, 2014, uh, Why Your Personal Data Counts and Why Tracking It Can Change the World, and then my most recent book was actually called Artificial Intelligence, so thank you, whoever named the panel, that's awesome, <laughs> and uh, I have to do a better job marketing my book titles, apparently. Um, but the reason we haven't talked as much about it uh, here, but in the divinity school, uh, my mom is a minister. And I actually went to school thinking I was going to be a minister. And the internal life of Bhutan, uh, of faith and Buddhism, is something that in America, especially in scientific circles, oftentimes is either eschewed, or it's not talked about, or in some rooms, not, not, not many, but some, it's sort of almost disdained this sense of the spiritual life is something that's not real. And I find that to be utterly hubristic. Uh, for one thing, it means that you're ignoring someone's subjective truth, and it's just rude. So, okay, you believe in something and I believe in this. Am I gonna deny your truth? Because you say you are, insert word here, Buddhist, agnostic, doesn't make any sense. And more importantly, if there is not a acknowledgement of what consciousness means to you, then you may sort of say, I guess consciousness is not something I need to care about. And I bring this up because um, the, the, the organization that I'm thrilled to work with, and I should say these views are my own, and I say that because A, it's something for IEEE, uh, it's a global organization, it's a nonprofit, it's the heart of the world uh, engineering community founded by Thomas Edison, so it's been around a while. It's a half million members, but it's really much broader and larger, because volunteers do the most of the work in the different programs that happen, and there are really four or five or six million people actively doing things with IEEE in over 160 countries. I was speaking at South by Southwest, the uh, conference, I've spoken there a lot about my book, Artificial Intelligence, and I was talking about the need to track your values. And like uh, my, my dear colleague, and I'm also honored to be on the advisory board for the Happiness Alliance, uh, I'm honored for that, and our dear friend, Laura Musikansky. Uh, who runs it, um, uh, I got to speak for IEEE. At the time, I didn't know who they were. But as I got to know who they were, my book, Artificial Intelligence, a lot of it was I was looking for, researching, I've uh, written for The Guardian and Mashable, and I kept calling people uh, uh, CTOs, entrepreneurs, saying, hey, where's the code of ethics for artificial intelligence? Because I'm not an engineer, so like an idiot, I was like, it's got to be in some book, right? Where's the book? Is it on the, in, on the interwebs? Did I miss it? The big code of ethics for AI. <laughs> and uh, the more, you know, I should, to, to honor the, the space, ever since Alan Turing, there's been different types of codes of ethics. 
But in that time, in 2013, 2014, researching the book, there wasn't anything written. And oftentimes people said to me, well, do you know about Isaac Asimov's Laws of Robotics? And I was like, it's one of my favorite science fiction short stories. And I'd be talking to a CTO. And now don't get me wrong, if you know the story, there's three laws and they added a fourth called the zeroth law. But it's do not harm humans, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you make medical tech, the first thing you need to do is use a scalpel, maybe as a robot, and to cut into somebody. So, boom, you're done. Anyway, so um, I talked to IEEE because I said, to me, it seems like you're sort of like the uh, United Nations of tech. Everyone is welcome to join. Anyone can, uh, by a consensus, make decisions. And you're global. And I joke about this a lot, but also if we're going to build codes of ethics that design autonomous and intelligent systems, my joke is, who do you want building your elevator? An engineer or an ethicist? <laughs> you probably want the engineer, but forgive the analogy, uh, it's poor after lunch, I'm sleepy, but you want the ethicist to take the ride. So what we've been doing for the past three years, I run a program, that's the long name up there, um, but basically we started asking, first with 100 people, experts uh, from North America and Europe, Look, codes of, codes of ethics are great, but those are more professional statutes, which are wonderful. We talked about this at lunch. We really have to now say, how do you actually build things like accountability and transparency into machines? These are the table stakes that will need to define the algorithmic era. Meaning, what are we going to do in the East? What are we going to do in the West? You know what you don't ask when you get on an airplane in Tokyo or in Bhutan or in Needham, or I'm sorry, would be in Logan? You don't go and say, huh, I wonder if they have a black box on this airplane. Oh, you don't have a black box? What the hell? I'm going to get on this airplane. The plane flies around the world. The black box is a technology that if it crashes, they can tell what happens. Seatbelts, when they first came out, the ACLU, you may know about this. I don't know if they did it with the airbags as well. People railed against seatbelts. How dare you constrict, literally and figuratively, my life in the car? And now as a parent, you know, my parents are the 16 and uh, uh, my kids are 16 and uh, 13. But if you even put a kid near a car and there's not like 14 seat belts and an airbag and like an oxygen mask, you get disdained, you know. Um, anyway, with two minutes left, I'll say this. Our data, because you haven't heard me talk about artificial intelligence yet, right? Our data makes up our data and identity. And we have been trained to think that it is something we can give away. And it's simply a tool to get a new type of mop or something. It actually makes up who we are. In aggregate, we are tracked to such a degree that we don't realize that our agency is being eroded in the sense of when we're asked to, when we are tracked to buy something, it's not that that one algorithm or the company is evil, that's irrelevant. But what it does want you to do is to do something, to purchase. A lot of my work the last six or seven years, and I've had the pleasure of speaking at one of Arno's amazing events, is to say, how can we use all that amazing technology that's built for tracking our purchases and say, what about tracking our purpose? Why is it when it's known what gives me a sense of flourishing in the amazing field of positive psychology, altruism, compassion, all these different things, if I'm compassionate to you and our new is watching, all of our dopamine goes up the same way. Scientifically, all the ways that, you know, this, these amazing ecosystem that's, that helps us to know what to buy which I'm not here to be against. This is awesome opportunity to know ourselves. We are at a fleeting time with humanity where there is not the danger of robots killing us. If the robots kill us, in one sense, cool. That's just easy. You wake up one day, you're like, oh, okay, I'm dead, <laughs> right? But what is the, the real risk is that we'll say, you know, it's easy for me to just kind of let this do X. And by the time you go from A to B to C to D to X and Y and Z, you have given away yourself. The technology is beautiful and elegant and wonderful. The opportunity to understand who you are in your data is precious, it's fleeting, and our work is to say it's not here for us to judge, it's certainly not here to be moral. It's to say at the beginning of design, think about how data is precious and it represents who you are. And how do we make that data and the work that we do with these amazing technologies first and foremost improve human well-being holistically, holistically, not for a certain percentage of people in one country that's fairly well off, and I'm not going to name names, but the whole world gets the same advantages. And an environmental flourishing, not just, hey, let's not die because, you know, the carbon emissions are so horrible, but honor, and this is another thing to Bhutan's credit, and when I've gotten the uh, privilege of knowing more uh, indigenous cultures, uh, the non-dualistic view of environment. I was raised to sort of think, 
Nature is outside. See that tree? Nature is part of us. So all the work that we're doing, the logic is not just to increase single bottom line, but to say how do we increase holistic human flourishing and environmental sustainability for all time. That's actually the success of artificial intelligence. Thank you, John. <clears throat> I think an extremely important area, and indeed I, well, I have this belief and no evidence yet, but I'm sure Harvard will find one soon, uh, that, uh, that we're all addicts, addicts of the mobile phone. I'm sure if you look at the parameters, we'd probably meet that. And just now what you touched about uh, behavior modification, I think happening with us all the time, especially through the most popular social media platforms uh, used mainly to make us purchase things you mentioned. I was wondering if based on your experience you can uh, share some examples where you've seen companies use the same behavior modification algorithms but for pro-social purposes or to actually make people feel better or do things which make them uh, better. Sure, I'm going to answer by playing harmonica and doing the wave again. <laughs> Now, one of my favorite stories to talk about sp specifically with artificial intelligence has to do with soldiers returning from war, struggling with PTSD. And a lot of our work is also about things like disclosure. With disclosure doesn't mean I'm telling you what to think or what to do. I'm simply saying as a safety measure, it's also called explainability, here's what this thing is about. So the soldiers are told, you are talking to a bot. This is an algorithmic therapist, and you can actually see the video of this online. It's a, you know, attractive looking kind of avatar looking woman. Um, and she does the first level of therapy with the soldiers, where the soldiers are said, or told rather, this is an algorithmic bot made to look like a person so that in one sense you will anthropomorphize her. I use these air quotes because there's a real danger if you don't have disclosure and people think they're talking to a person or something that is alive, depending on your cultural perspective and want to honor different traditions like Shinto and all that. But the point being, the soldiers were told that, and then what the soldiers reported saying is, they knew that they could say things to a bot where they were dealing with such horrific memories and things they had gone through, they were too ashamed to say to a human. And it was the first step to then move, as it were, to then talk to the human therapist. So it's a wonderful example of, of you know, working with a technology with the disclosure and with the recognition, in this case, that the, the goal is to move towards the human interaction, but that there are wonderful uses of the technology. Uh, there are so many wonderful uses of the technology. It's really not about the technology. Again, it's about the disclosure and having people f understand what's the whole process as compared to just sort of having it appear in their house or appear on their phone and they're just sort of forced in one sense to, to start living with it. Mm, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that. So with that, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Please join me in giving a round of applause to our excellent panelists. <laughs>